Now, it's not probably the usual way, but just just by way of introduction here, we begin at the end of the section that I read. It said this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I ask you, when you hear that phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Does it sound doubtful? Does it sound stoppable? Or does it sound like this is in the will of God? This is in the heart and desire of God. This is in the stirred up and committed interest of God. And he is surely going to get it done. I mean, that's what you see there. And you think, wow, this is powerful that no one can intervene and no one can thwart and no one can delay and none can stop because it is the Lord of hosts, a phrase that speaks of his great might and power. His zeal speaks of his interest and earnestness and he will do it. That's wow. So what is, what is some of the sense of what is going to be done here? And I want to begin to take this up because what the scriptures so often do as it unpacks certain things in the history of the Old Testament, there are prophecies that will speak to those people with practical warnings and calling them from sin, reminders of God's hand of judgment. But then in addition to that, there are sections that speak beyond those people to the one who is to come. The one who is like no other who has been born of a woman. Like no other who has walked the face of the earth. In ways that absolutely baffles and astounds the mind. And so I want to begin with that thought and a few points. First of all, in what I would call the mysterious descriptions. Listen to what it says, simply beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. After speaking of certain judgments in the hand of God that is going to be unfolding there, it says this partway through verse 1. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, I'll just ask you this little question. Has anyone here ever heard of Galilee? What do you know of Galilee? Now some of us will, might know some history of it. It's, it's a fishing region. It's not necessarily the most educated region. It's not necessarily the most affluent region. But we also know it for another reason, don't we? Where is uh, the youth of, uh, of Jesus? Where is he generally raised? In Galilee, in Nazareth. Now, remember, I want you to just take this in your thoughts for a moment. In John chapter 7, as they're wrestling with, who is this Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised one? And the different people are having conversations concerning it as they were oft in confusion. Is he the one? Is he not the one? Now, we don't want to judge them too harshly. Even the very one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, later sent his disciples to him to say, Are you the one or should we wait for another? 
because there was so much mystery in the minds of the Jews shrouding the Messiah that we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of extra scripture unfolding. It's not that we are smarter than them or better, but we have that additional benefit of looking back and then the scriptures giving that application. It said this in John 7, verse 41. Others said, this is the Christ. In a Jewish sense, that would be this is the Messiah, the promised anointed one. But some said... Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Do you see their concern? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? We hear these things all the time. Is he to come from Galilee? Has not, they say, the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people. Some are saying what? Well, we think it's him, and he comes from Galilee. Others are saying, well, I don't know if it's him, because he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. Hint. He come, He was born in Bethlehem and comes from Galilee. Both are true. It's not one or the other. They could only see so much. They, again, he did not walk around with a shirt that said, born in Bethlehem. You know, there was no way for these people to necessarily know it. But we're able to look at this and say, look, they recognized one prophecy, that he was to be born in Bethlehem. But you know what they hadn't picked up on? There was going to be something extraordinary that would Usher in the latter days, and it would be right there emerging in Galilee of the nations. Moving from end of verse 1, Isaiah 9, into verse 2. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now listen to what it says, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone on them. What a remarkable promise that, that the emergence of the Son of God, even into the, the entry of his ministry, as he fulfills that, that planting of God to be the light of the world, where does he begin his ministry? Right there in the Sea of Galilee. It's also interesting to note, uh, uh, when, G when, when the angels appear as Jesus ascended, the angels come down and they say to those apostles gathered there, men of Galilee. The, the accusation at, at times to people who are following Jesus, are you from Galilee also? But see, in Galilee, a great light has shone. And in John chapter 8, Jesus spoke these words. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The world is filled with darkness, Galilee with darkness, everything in great darkness. But then what? Jesus. He is the light. A great light has shone that began there in Galilee, but does not end there. And that peculiar phrase that men have wrestled over at the end of verse 1, uh, Galilee of the nations. 
What? Galilee's not of the nations. Galilee's specific to a nation. Why are you saying Galilee of the nations? Because from there, the light that will shine unto the ends of the earth arises and shines. I mean, you begin to think about this. This is, Isaiah is written more than 700 years before the birth of Christ. And we've got prophecies saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We've got prophecies telling us that he is going to be brought out of Egypt. We have prophecies saying that he is going to be the branch out of Nazareth. We have prophecies saying that he is going to come and shine forth from Galilee. And people might be scratching their heads. Hold on. Is it Bethlehem? Is it Egypt? Is it Galilee? And what do we say? Uh-huh. Yes, indeed. But they would think, practically speaking, how in the world will one man be born there and yet come out of there and yet arise from there? I don't get it. How is he doing all these things? Well, simple hint. He's not like any other man. And these things would distinguish him, you know, Certain guesses people can throw out there, you know, again, we live in a world in which strangely people still read things called horoscopes, you know, and sometimes you drive down roads and, and, and somebody's got a sign in a window that says palm reader. Come on, you know, and, 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 and their idea is to try to predict the future and they often you've read them. Say strange things that aren't even clear. Soon you will meet someone. And something will happen. Be ready for it. What? That's kind of true of every... And it's just these random things. The scripture didn't play in this, this broad manner where you could kind of... Well, there's about 50 people who, who fit this bill. You would have, when you, when you did the math on the prophecies, said, there is no one who will ever fit these. Some of them are so precise, so complex, and so complicated. How in the world is that going to happen? And God said, yeah, you go ahead and be amazed. Go ahead and be astounded. Because Christ is not like anyone else. Let's keep going with the, some thoughts of the mysterious. And I want to jump down to verse 6. Because I want to really unpack this. We, get, we begin in verse 6. It says this. Listen. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now it says, it, it's, both times it says, it says child and son. And that, that has a good poetry for us. But really it, it, both of them are... Singular masculine. So you could say, to us a son is given, to us a son is given. You could say that twice, but it's given with two different words. But I don't want you to miss this. There's a beautiful thing woven into that phrase. Well, we know that this individual who is going to be this light of Galilee to the nations, that he's going to come as a child. So they would have been thinking initially, ordinary man, maybe a great king. 
maybe a future leader. And that was part of the shortfall of the Jews. They did not understand that the Messiah would not only be the one who would lead them and take up the throne of David, but that he would be the one who has come from the very throne of God. That they would not have fathomed. That's why even though when some were thinking he's the Messiah, when he would speak of God as his father, they would get upset. He's making himself out to be equal with God. They would get disturbed about that. But we're going to see something. But as we see child there, and it speaks of his incarnation, I love the, the simple introduction that's in that phrasing. Listen to what it says. To us. To us a child is given. To us a son is given. Jesus is given particularly, personally, and purposefully. It's, it's not random. It's very specific, very personal. I love the way even that the angels come and they say God had in his mercy. And, and it's often interesting. By the time we're in the days, uh, you know, if you go far enough back, uh, almost every family that had land holdings had shepherds. Children would be shepherds. As time went by, you were too good for that. And you hired shepherds because your, your family was, was big and important. And you didn't want to seem... And shepherds became, again, that, that group of seeming outcast, seeming uneducated. Uh, uh, from the early days where they would oft leave in a pen and go inside, time would go by and shepherds are, you know, why don't you just go ahead and stay on out there with the sheep? You know, not, not so, you know, not, nobody... Woke up one day and said, my aspiration is someday my child might grow up to be a shepherd. Now, that's not what they were wanting because, because that didn't require much of anything. And yet, it's often interesting to me, to whom did the angels appear and manifest this glory and make known to shepherds in the field? Not only shepherds of the field, but also wise men in the east. In Jerusalem, you had scribes, you had rabbis, you had leaders, you had Herod who was king. Did the angels go to them? No. The they went to the wise men in a distant land. They went to shepherds out in the field. These other seemingly important people to men weren't included. When the wise men came and to seek him out, they were confused. And actually the scripture says, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The scripture, if the Messiah has come, he who's prophesied to be king of the Jews has come. Then would not the right, respite, right response of the people be hallelujah, hosanna, praise God, the promise is coming. But what did they think? Oh, no. All the people were cheating. All, all, all the defrauding. All of our power. All of our prominence. All of our importance. Can he wait until our day is done? And then. That, so, but listen. Came to the shepherds. And what did he say to these shepherds? I love the words. In Luke chapter 2. Verse 11. He says this. For unto you is born 
this day. Now, I want to note this. Were the shepherds having a baby? No. So we would have thought the language would have made more sense unto Mary is born this day. That would have made more sense. But there's something bigger going on in the coming of Jesus. You know, it's something that is shocking. And the angels say, to you, which has to be really confusing initially. What? A child is born this day in the city of David. And what does it say about him? A savior. The one who is being born today. He's being born for you. And he's your savior. I just think, how amazing is that? Well, how did God know that they were going to believe? He know that they would. Uh, are you kidding? Here's the reality. God in his mercy. Revealed his son. And they go. And they see. They marvel at what they see. And then. Really. They become almost the first evangelists. In a sense. They begin telling everyone. Of what was told them. And what they saw. I mean, think about that. To you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When you unpack that, think about it. He's going to save you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. It's picking up already that sense. Kurios is the word that would be used by the Greek translation to translate the name of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. You often see it when you read through your Old Testaments. You'll see the word Lord in there in all caps. So this one who's born for you, he's God. This one who's born for you, he's the promised one. The anointed one. The unique and distinct one. This one who's born for you is the God who saves. Jesus. <laughs> Which we looked at last week. That's what Jesus means. The God who saves. And here he is. And, and you just see that. And you will go and see him. And, and, you, and you love this. And what, how will you see this one? I mean, because the initial mind of man is going to be thinking what? This is God. God, Lord, Master. This is Messiah. This is Savior. Where's he going to be? And it's even like uh, uh, artists of history can't handle the humble incarnation. They got to they gotta paint a Jesus who has... Uh, Rays of light shining out of his skin. Listen, he's the light of the world, not in the sense, if you turn out the lights, you can see him. That's not the sense of it. He is the spiritual light that reveals those things that were yet in darkness that could not be seen and could not be known apart from him. And he would reveal them. He would reveal God in a way that none had conceived of God before. He who has seen me has seen the Father. In him the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelt. I mean, when you, when you begin to grasp this. And, and they show up. And there's not a throne. 
There's not a shrine. There's not an exalted circumstance. How are you going to find him? Just wrapped in swaddling cloths, not gold embroidered, nothing, just simple swaddling cloths. And laying where? In a manger, which is a word we generally use only around the Christmas season. So we got to simplify that so we don't magnify it. What's a manger? A feeding trough for animals. Is that where you normally laid babies? How many prior kings do you think were born and first laid in troughs? I want to say this a little stronger. He who is the greatest ever king, the king of kings and lord of lords, in a sense, has the humblest beginning that we could conceive of. That, that when I say the mysterious purposes, God just continually baffles the mind of men. To us, he's given. To us, a child is born. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. I don't want us to ever miss that. Why did Jesus come? To fulfill a purpose, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I ask you this, did he accomplish it? Did he achieve it? Because he, the father sent the son, we have a savior. We are adopted in the beloved. Oh, we got to move on. Let's move on from this initial introduction of the, the mysterious descriptions to what I would call the majestic dominion. Now, uh, for this, uh, there's part of me that really gets upset with the translators. Now, I want to have mercy on them because they did not live today. And so they're, they're, they're using in their history and in their society the best words that they can. And it predates the King James translation. They simply carried on a, trans, uh, a, a, a tradition of previous translators. But it says this, listen, in, in verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And then it says in verse 7, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so what I want to deal with right now here is the word government. And I want to tell you this. This word is nowhere else translated in the Old Testament, government. All right. You know, because generally speaking, I don't know about you. When I think of government on someone's shoulders... That sounds horrible, you know, you know, you know, but the sense here, this word in, in its simple, literal explanation, the, the word is misra and it means this rule, authority, dominion. Now, generally people think of today who has rule, who has authority, who has dominion, government. This is, this, it's bigger than the sense of government. The, the idea is this. Rule, dominion, and authority will be on his shoulders. 
we often use another word for that. Absolute sovereignty will rest on this son. That's powerful, isn't it? And, and, and when you see it, it says it, it will be on his shoulders. And of the increase, the vastness of it, there will be no end. Now listen to what John 3 says. As John is considering himself and Jesus. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. And then he says this, he who comes from above is above all. It says this in John uh, 17. Let me begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Listen to verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. So I ask you, who has authority over all flesh? Yeah, again, the term all flesh usually is broader than all mankind. It's all life is, is usually the sense of it. But in the exercise of his authority, you have given him authority all, over all flesh. Part two of verse two of John 17, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There is a sense in which he has absolute authority over all. And there is a special sense in which many sons designated for glory have been given to the Son. Listen, Jesus isn't done here. He says, and this is eternal life that they know you. So listen, the thought is this. Well, Jesus is going to give eternal life to all those the Father has given him. Yes, but this is eternal life. It's not just that you live forever. That's great. You know, but it's this is eternal life that they know the only true God. Listen to me. The idea of simply living and existing forever. I don't know. Maybe that appeals to you. I'm not inspired by it. But the sense of this is that you may know the true God. That's eternal life. I mean, I mean, that, that the life isn't going to be just an endless succession of days and routines and, 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 and struggling and selfishness and all the realities that we got going on now. It's centered in and wrapped up in a knowledge of God. This is eternal life. Now, the fact that that many don't think, oh, how glorious and how much I want to know as much about him as I can know. Even knowing that when I, when I have exhausted all that I might get from here, which we may not exhaust it in our lifetime, even then, we only know in part. But when he comes, we will know him fully. That you may know God. Jesus came that he might give us to know God. Redeem us, reconcile us. To God. Ah, when I think of these things. And then he goes on to say this. Uh, verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Uh, 
Who can say that? So Jesus is saying what? I'm not like anyone else. Bef you didn't exist before. I didn't exist before. God wove us together in the inner parts. He breathed into us life. He, he made us. But what about Jesus? Before he was in his origins, his life did not begin in the womb as ours does. His life did not begin when he was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. Our life begins when we are conceived. All life begins when it is conceived. We know this, amen? And, but Jesus had always been. You notice I can't tell you when he began because it didn't happen. He has always been. We, we love those words that are stated in Revelation and it repeated of him, who was, is, and is to come. The sense, Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and end of all that's created, but he himself has no beginning and no end. Whoa, and our minds blow. And Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Utter dominion. But listen, in the exercise, he has absolute dominion. In the exercise of it, it's, it's unfolding. He still allows men to carry out their wicked designs. He still allows sinners to sin. But you do know when you read the end, when there is the new heaven and the new earth, all the unrighteous will be judged for their unrighteous. Nothing unclean will enter it. No temptation, no wickedness. Listen, there's going to be no more stumbling, no more falling, no more, no more sin, no more uh, uh, of, of our reactions and responses of the flesh. That flesh that wages war within us now, that we know all too well, that wages war within our soul, that battle will be done. It will be won, and we will be fully delivered. Oh, and I've not even, we're going to have to just pick up the pace little bitty bit. The third thought here that I want us to go on, so, uh, go on and see. So we've seen the mysterious descriptions that begin in those amazing and personal prophecies. We've seen the majestic dominion that this, this one will, will have. But now let, it, let us look at what I, what I say here, the many designations. Now, this is interesting because last week we did look at this, where with the promise of the birth of Christ in speaking to Joseph, it said, you will call his name Jesus. And then it's, you will call his name Emmanuel. You think, wow, so what's his name? And we saw that those were descriptive, right? He is the God who saves. He is God with us. Well, here also, look at with me, if you would, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6, it says, and his name shall be called. Again, these are some of the confusing things. His name shall be called. And then there's just, 
a bunch of stuff that seems like more than one name, right? Because these names are descriptive. There is one God. We call upon the name of God. But, but the Old Testament is filled. And if you ever do a study of it, you'll study of, study of God. You can see the names of God listed in the Old Testament. Some of it is Jehovah Jireh. My God provides. Jehovah Tzidkenu. My righteousness. And on and on. Uh, provider. Healer. Righteousness. Deliverer. And so you have all of these uh, names of God. That speak of his power, his person, his activity. Here, listen to these names. And I got to help you a little bit here. The translators, you know, you think I'm always against translators. I am so thankful for translators, okay? Um, but sometimes the, the goal is, to, is readability. You know, it's e e ease of reading, so uh, ease of memory. And also, when you see name. They tried to shorten this as much as possible by putting pieces together. So, for example, in most of your Bibles, other than Bob's, Bob's got the King James over there. It says, uh, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That's what many of your translations say. In Bob's translation, there it says, Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma. Mighty God. But I'm I, I just going to throw this out here for just a moment that, that you get it. I'm not trying to mix or twist anything. If you ever look up the word mighty or the words wonderful, if you ever happen to look them up in a dictionary or on your phones, I know no one opens dictionaries anymore, you'll see that mighty is an adjective, right? Mighty God. Uh, it, it describes God being the noun. Not here. These words are all noun absolute singular. Until you get to um, everlasting father, prince of peace. Those are connected words. So we're, gonna, we're just going to briefly think about that for a moment. His name shall be called, even wonderful is an adjective, wonder. Listen. I don't know if you've ever read, I hope you have, but in Judges chapter 13, this is where God is communicating to Samson's parents, you're going to have a kid. And they doubted it. How, how, how is all this going to come about? And, and when he's promised it, and they've said, we want you to stay, we want to prepare you some food, in Judges chapter 13, verse 17, Manoah, Samson's father said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And we know this under the, in the Old Testament, many times coming in the form of the angel of the Lord was God himself. God the son. And listen to what it says. Verse 18, the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing that it is wonderful. Seeing that it is a wonder. Why do you ask my name? And again, here's to help you a little bit more. It's, this isn't the, the origins of that song, His Name is Wonderful, that we sang last week. Good song. But the idea of this, uh, seeing that it is, the idea is a wonder. It is something that is a marvel. It is something that is a wonder. Something was a wonder means I 
can't explain it. If I can explain it, then it's understandable. It's not a wonder. If you can't understand it, what do you do? I wonder. People see a magician and, and a coin disappears and reappears and they say, I wonder how he did that. Means I can't explain how he did it. But then someone else will say, well, he, he just hit it between his fingers and it's not that hard. God in some sense, in the fullest sense, is inconceivable, incomprehensible to men. He's bigger and beyond. He is a wonder. That's the... That's, now, listen. Wonderful counselor. Yeah, he's a wonderful counselor too. I'm not going to discredit the quality of his counsel. There is no more wonderful counselor. There is no more glorious counselor. But he's more than just a great counselor. The, the New English translation actually dared to say there, he is um, an extraordinary strategist. <laughs> what? But I will say this. You know, he's also the most extraordinary strategist. Sure. I mean, you want to keep heaping accolades and words of praise? The bigger you get, the more you go beyond men, the closer you're getting, but not fully yet describing God. He remains a wonder. And I, and I, and I could show you a, a few more verses. In uh, uh, Psalm 77, verse 14, it simply says this. You are the God who works wonders. And you have made known your might to your peoples. Isaiah 25 verse 1 says, praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Wondrous things. Plans formed from of old. So the idea here is simply this. Uh, he, his name shall be called incomprehensible, extraordinary, awe-inspiring. Worthy of marveling forever. We're never going to completely wrap our minds around it in this life. Then goes on to say counselor. Which I want us to know that uh, he is a wonderful counselor. Because it says in Isaiah 28, 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel. Okay. So he is a wonderful counselor. But he's also a wonder. And he's also counselor. The term counsels, sure, there is a sense in which uh, he's the one that we ought to get our wisdom from, get our marching orders from, our direction from. For example, the children of Israel, when they're getting ready to go into battle, what's the wisest first step for them? Inquire of the Lord. Let us inquire of the Lord. And sometimes the Lord would say, go up. For they will be given into your hands. Are you sure? We're so few and there's so many. Go up. They're given into your hands. Sometimes he would tell them, divide into two. Send some around the backside. Send some this way. And his strategies, his counsel, his guidance, certainly wonderful, certainly perfect. But the sense is even bigger than this. When we consider uh, uh, the, the words of a counselor, the words of a Kawet. Let me read for you Isaiah 19, where we see the same thought. Isaiah 19, verse 17. The land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned 
will fear, listen, because of the counsel or purpose of the Lord of hosts who has purposed against them. Okay? So listen, when you see the word counsel, it speaks of one who has a plan, one who has a purpose. We might carry it out even further. Um, listen to what it says in Isaiah 30. Warning the children of Israel who will not consult him and try to carry out their own plan. Ah, stubborn children, Isaiah 31, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. You didn't come to me and ask. You didn't come to me and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. And they add sin to sin. But you know what? The nations will take counsel with one another. But it will come to nothing because God is the one in control. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 reminds us of this. That God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. So he's not just a wonderful counselor. He's a wonder. And he's the God of all purpose working out his plans. Moving on to the to. The next one in here, again, wonderful, counselor. Listen, we put together mighty God, and they surely go together. But here again, it's mighty is an adjective in English, isn't it? This is in a noun absolute. So he is might and power. He is God. So yeah, if he, if he is might and power and he is God then he's clearly a mighty God but it, it, it's, it's getting this sense all that happens he is the one who is fulfilling his purpose in all that exists he is power in all places that are he is God in all where there are men and minds, and even seeming wisdom, he yet remains a wonder. So, so, it's using some of the biggest words and ideas known to men. And leaving us there thinking, what kind of, what kind of son is this? And then it goes on. And says, now, now these two are connected. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. These are connected. But it, it's kind of a fun one. Because in, in the Hebrew, uh, here it's, it, it's the word everlasting. It's not, it's not a full word. Uh, in, in, the, in the Hebrew, often they will say, um, until the harvest. Or until the dawn. Right? And so there's an until and a for the duration and then when it's finished. The Old Testament Hebrew often sets the idea of forever. By simply saying. Until. And then just leaving it. <laughs> and, and, you know, where, where, where people are starting to think. Until. Now. For the duration. Yeah, until. Endless until, you know, uh, uh, an unqualified until. It's, it's really just a, a, a beautiful way of stating it. And he's the father. 
well, wait, why are you calling him the Father? He's the Son. Well, all things that came into existence came into existence through him. You know, so there is a, you know, there is a sense in which he is the one through whom everything was made, through whom everything exists that exists. And also wanting us to get this idea, don't try too hard to divide God. It's hard to understand it. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But don't you get too carried away where you've got the Son as one God and the Father as another God. We don't have multiple gods. And what God does, God does in the unity of His divine will and purpose. Don't play the game, well, the Father wants this and the Son wants that, and they, you know, they agreed and they divvied up. And a lot of the glorious work of God is done in the divine counsel. He works everything after the counsel of His will. You know, and that still remains a wonder to us, doesn't it? But he is the everlasting father. And then it says the prince of peace. And this is, this is kind of where we, we culminate today. Well, what do we need peace? What does the scripture say? Regarding men, we are at enmity with God. We are estranged from God. And there is only one hope and one place of peace. Listen to what it says in Romans 5. Ones. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. Again, the, for the term Prince of Peace there, uh, it's not even the simple word for priest. He is the, he is the arche. Um, he, he is the pinnacle. He is the chief. He is the, the highest and ultimate expression of peace. Uh, the, the, the words here, they just cannot get any bigger. The scripture says this in Isaiah 53, 3. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And with his wounds, we are healed. You were, Colossians 1, once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's what you once were. But Ephesians 2, 14, he himself is our peace. Amen? So he is, we didn't make peace. We didn't raise the white flag. We didn't get it done. We were at enmity until we realized the one that we were turned away from, the one that we in darkness could not see, he's the glorious one. He's the true and living God. He's the eternal one in hope. So listen, I end with just, just stating these um, Bringing these pieces together in uh, the last point, which I say, consider the matchless distinctions of this son. In him is endless dominion. In him is endless peace. You keep reading in there. In him is endless justice. In him is endless righteousness. There will be no end from this time forth and forevermore to him belongs the throne of David, his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it. To him belong the highest of heaven and the lowest of the earth. He is king of kings, lord of lords, son of Adam, son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, sent for 
us. And so I think of this. When we talked last week and said, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift of his ineffable son with inconceivable excellence and glory, God help us to but grasp a glimpse of the glory of our Savior, the Son of God. Because on a day long ago, in the true history of this creation, in the unfolding of God's plan, the angels were sent forth to declare that the Son had been sent forth. And that day was born a Savior that is Jesus Christ. Not merely, we can say, not merely the Lord, but Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we are just amazed at the description that you've given. That this son, the one that you would send, that he would be God. That he would be power. That he would be wonder. That he would be purpose and counsel. That he would be the one through whom everything was created. That he would be the, the establisher of peace and hope and eternal life. Oh God, help us to sense the great joy and the great Savior that is ours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.